Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you today as we've already sung. We look in faith and we come to you with our needs. We confess that our great need this morning is not financial. It's not even physical. It's not even purely emotional only. It is a deep spiritual need. And it affects every area of our lives. But we come, Lord, rejoicing that in you we have grace. In you we have life. In you we have redemption. And in you we have the infinite supply of all that we really need. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your compassion on broken and needy sinners like us. We come to you today asking to be filled, asking to be strengthened, asking that you would open our eyes to behold you, to behold your glory so that we might be changed, so that we might have the longings of our souls satisfied as only you can. So we come, Lord, with that hope and that request, asking that your spirit now would speak through your word. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor, once wrote this to his students. He had a number of young uh, preachers that he was training. And he said, preach to broken hearts because in every pew you are sure to find some. That's good advice. He is correct in that. And I hope to take that advice today. The reality is we are all, every one of us, both sinners and sufferers. In every row in this room, in many of that we don't have pews, but padded chairs, there are people who are here today and you have experienced some sort of sorrow or suffering, perhaps it was in the past. Perhaps it is in the very, very recent past for you. Perhaps it's a present reality. And if it's not, it will be very shortly. All you have to do is wait long enough. And living life in this broken world guarantees that you will feel the, the painful consequences of your own sin, the painful consequences of other people's sin against you, the painful consequences of Adam's sin because we live in a broken world where there's disease and death and decay. We live life under the fall, and eventually it all ends in death. But it's into this cursed world, into this fallen realm, it is into this sin-plagued and Satan-infested domain that Jesus comes. And Jesus comes to preach good news for those who are broken, good news to those who are needy, good news to those like us who are spiritually defective and those who are spiritually oppressed. Last week, we saw that Jesus came preaching into Nazareth in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came preaching grace. And Jesus not only came to preach this good news, Jesus did not just talk about grace. He signals the proof and the power of his message. He displays his grace through his mighty works, through his miracles, works that demonstrate his absolute and uncontested authority as the Son of God. Because it will take one with authority to deal with all that causes suffering and sorrow in this world. Following the rejection of Jesus at his hometown in Nazareth, Luke moves on in Luke chapter 4, you can turn there if you're not there already, to tell us about Jesus' ministry in a town called Capernaum. 
It was a town on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It was a a busy town, a town with lots of commerce and trade. It was a town where several of his disciples were actually from. Uh, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, had a fishing business there. So did James and John. And it's likely that Matthew, the tax collector, set up shop there as well. And this city of Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee... It became really home base. It became the center of Jesus' ministry during this time period. And in our text this morning, which will be Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44, I would like to look at three events that take place here in this town, in the city of Capernaum, because each one of these events highlights for us the authority of Christ. Very clearly, that is Luke's theme in this text. It is the authority of Christ. That authority will be demonstrated as he exercises authority over the demons, authority over disease, and authority even over the demands of the townspeople. But I want us to see something more than just Jesus has authority. Because we learn something very important about that authority as we look at these stories. We learn that the authority of Jesus Christ is good news. The authority of Christ is good news because he wields that authority, not only for the glory of his Father, but also for the good of those who live life under the curse. Jesus exercises his authority on behalf of those who suffer. We're going to see this authority demonstrated in three ways. Number one, we find in verses 31 through 37 that Christ has authority over the power of darkness. Verse 31, and he went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. We'll just stop right there. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, which is his habit. This is what he's been doing, proclaiming the gospel. But he's teaching, the text says, with authority. They were astonished in verse 32 at his teaching because his word, his message, his personal presentation was different than what they typically heard from other rabbis. It was different than what they heard from the scribes. Everything that the scribes and the rabbis taught was footnoted. It was, it was rehearsing, it was quoting what some other teacher who had gone before them had already said. Jesus doesn't do that. As we already saw earlier in chapter four, he opens the scroll, he reads the words of God, and then he gives the authoritative interpretation. When he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, I've come to preach good news to the captives, to give sight to the blind, it's the year of the Lord's favor, he closes it up and he says, today, this word is fulfilled in your hearing. That is teaching with authority, and they are amazed by that. They're amazed by that. But we notice here that something happens as Jesus is teaching and preaching in the synagogue. Verse 33, it says, And in the synagogue, this local community center where teaching and worship took place every Sabbath, in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We compare this to what happened in Nazareth. There, the teaching of Jesus was met with anger from sinful men. And when Jesus preached the gospel, they tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. Here in Capernaum, his teaching is similarly met with opposition. But this time, it's hostility. It is opposition from a sinister spiritual 
power. His preaching is interrupted somewhat drastically by a man present that Luke says had an unclean demon. Demons are simply fallen angels. They are, they are created beings, spiritual beings created by God. They were created holy, created good, created to serve God and worship him. But a good chunk of them rebelled against God and they followed Satan when he fell. They now serve the devil as their master and they share his unholy nature. So they are unclean in a moral, spiritual sense. Their presence, therefore, is defiling. Their purpose when they work in people's lives is destructive. It is uncleanness that is separate from God and unfit for his presence and deserving of judgment. And apparently, this man who has an unclean demon has been sitting in church and nobody knew. Oftentimes we think of someone who is possessed by an unclean spirit as fitting some sort of maybe Hollywood stereotype. But here we see that there's rational discourse. There's clearly intelligible speech. And this person is gathered in a place of religious fervor. He's sitting there listening to preaching. Perhaps no one suspected. Perhaps no one knew that he had this unclean spirit. Demons can be very subtle. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. But in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the presence of the very Son of God, in the presence of the one who has been anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit, this unclean spirit is squirming in his seat. And eventually, as he's hearing the authoritative teaching of God's truth, the authoritative word of the Son of God, he can contain himself no longer. And Luke says he cries out with a loud voice. What's translated here as ha in the ESV. This is not laughter. This is a shriek of anger. It's a shriek of terror. And he cries out, what have you to do with us? He is shocked that the Holy Son of God has entered his domain, the place where he had influence, the place where he had been busy at work. And now the Son of God is here doing some other work. What have you to do with us? It's a recognition that he is completely opposite in nature and in character with the Son of God. He is an unclean spirit, but this is the Holy One. What are you doing here? In a sense, he's saying this town ain't big enough for the two of us. You're the Holy One of God. What are you here to do? And he asked this rhetorical question. Have you come to destroy us? Or you could even translate it, you've come to destroy us, haven't you? You see, he knew what was going on. This is the eternal destiny of the demons, is to be conquered by Jesus Christ. And this unclean spirit knows it. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this demon is going, oh no, what are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us? In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus says that hell is the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This demon knew what his destiny was. Later on in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus delivers another man who came to him out of the tombs, it says this man in Luke 8, 28, when he saw Jesus, cried out, fell down before him, and the demon speaks with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. The demons know. They know that when the clock runs out, they are going to be judged by Christ. 
This unclean spirit knows Jesus' character. He knows he's the holy son of God. He knows Jesus' power, that he is able to destroy him. And he also knows Jesus' identity. He cries out, I know who you are, the holy one of God. And there's a, a bitter irony here that the people of Nazareth refused to believe that Jesus was the son of God. They refused to acknowledge that he was the Messiah. But the demons know. They know the truth. James says the demons believe and they shudder. They tremble in fear because they know who Jesus is. They know his power. But this cry of identifying Jesus as the Holy One of God, this is not a statement of faith. There is no love for Christ in this profession. There is no submission to Jesus as Lord. There is no embrace of Jesus as the true King. There's only terror, only anger, only antagonism in this declaration that I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this cry, this interruption to the sermon is antagonistic. He's trying to interfere with what Jesus is doing. He's not trying to advance the mission of Christ. He's not trying to help all the people around him come to believe in Jesus. No, he's trying to sow confusion. He's trying to prematurely announce something that Jesus had planned to progressively reveal through his teaching and through his miracles. It would take time. It'll take us almost halfway through the book of Luke before the disciples go, you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus is going to teach them that. This demon is not going to be allowed to teach them that. And so Jesus will silence him very shortly, close his mouth. But I want to just pause and ask the question because it helps us understand the flow of this text. What is going on here? Why do we have this conflict in the synagogue? Why is there this conflict? Well, consider what's really happening. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. We'll see that down in verse 43. That's what Jesus is doing. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. And his preaching in that moment, his preaching in that place to those people, and Jesus' personal presence, the fact that he had showed up, the Holy One of God, that indicated to the enemy, it signaled that the war is on. This is nothing less than an invasion of the kingdom of darkness. And this gracious work of God, the invasion of light, the invasion of holiness, the invasion of grace into a place that was under the rule of darkness, a place that was suffering, it's met with fierce opposition. This phenomenon of demonic activity is is mentioned little to, to none in the Old Testament. We really don't see much like this in the Old Testament scriptures. And following the time period of Jesus and his apostles, it's also very, very rare that we see something like this. But at the moment when Jesus comes, and at the moment where the apostles are taking the gospel to the nations, we see this intensification of demonic activity. Because the king, as the kingdom of light comes, the kingdom of darkness is muscling up and trying to match force with force. God has sent his son into the world. Jesus is the servant, the suffering servant of the most high God. Satan sees that and he's now sending his servants into the world as well, trying to counteract what God is doing. And as the father pours out his spirit on the son, so these demonic spirits are poured out, trying to frantically find strongholds in the hearts of men in effort to counterfeit and counteract what God is doing through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And this will result in conflict. This will result in head-to-head challenges. This is just really not even round one, it's round two, because Jesus already faced Satan in the wilderness. But every attempt to challenge Jesus is really no contest. No matter what Satan does, he always loses. We see how Jesus responds in verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus speaks a word of authority. Authority. He's been teaching with authority. And now he exercises that authority by rebuking them. And then everyone present sees that authority. So authority is the theme. Authority is the theme. Jesus does not dialogue with the demon. He doesn't reason with him. He doesn't negotiate with him. He doesn't even answer his questions. He simply commands him to be quiet, and then he kicks him out. He silences him and then sends him away. He says, be silent. Although this demon was professing something that was true, that Jesus was the Holy One of God, the words of this demon were not words of faith. They were said with sneering and spiteful anger. And Jesus refuses to receive such recognition. He will not allow the demons to be the bearers of truth. No, no, no. You cannot grab the mic at this point and steal my line. That's not going to happen. So be silent. Stop it. See, the demons are speaking out of turn, and the premature announcement of who Jesus is would have interfered with the timing of God's plan. So he says, be silent, and then he says, come out of him. Not a request, but a command. Jesus uses no no formula of exorcism. He He doesn't cast some spell. He doesn't call upon some name. He simply, with his own authority, commands the demon to get out. And the demon responds violently. He comes out literally kicking and screaming. He throws his victim on the ground. But he has no choice but to obey. He must submit to the authority of Christ. And we see here that Jesus graciously preserves the man. He keeps this man from getting hurt at all. This last ditch effort of the demon to cause more suffering, to cause destruction, is really a futile effort. Jesus will not allow him to do any harm. So when the demon, verse 35, had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And notice how the people respond. Verse 36, they're amazed. They're amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. These people recognize that Jesus is unique. He's unique in his authority, unique in his power. The way he does things is just different. It is just different than anything they had ever seen before. So let's step back and ask the question, why is Jesus doing this? Why does Jesus address the demon in this way? Why does he cast him out? Well, obviously there's compassion for a suffering man. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 3 says that the bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not break quench. Christ has compassion on those who suffer. That's obviously true. But even more than that, this is meant to be a display of his authority. See, Jesus didn't stop teaching when this man interrupted. 
he simply switched to an object lesson. He switched to an object lesson. And he's trying to demonstrate and teach this, this truth of his authority. So he does this miracle for a purpose. It's not a random display of power. This is not just some party trick to impress people. It's an authoritative display that is directly connected to his mission. I want you to flip back the next page, the previous page. Look again at what Jesus has been preaching from the book of Isaiah. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And get this line. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus' message was that he came to set captives free. And in casting the demon out of this man, Jesus is demonstrating the same truth that he's been preaching, giving everyone a reason to believe that what Jesus preaches, he is able to perform. This is a powerful object lesson that convincingly illustrates everything he's been saying. He preaches with authority. He casts out this demon with absolute authority. Such a demonstration of power invites everyone to trust. It calls for faith. It invites us to believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah and that he is able to accomplish our salvation. You see, this authority of Jesus over the power of darkness is essential. Jesus wields this power over darkness in order to save us. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If Jesus does not have power over the evil one, he will be unable to rescue anyone out of his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, describing those who do not believe, it says, in their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Those who do not believe are being blinded by Satan. They are being affected and impacted by his nefarious power. 2 Timothy 2.26 describes those who are unrepentant as being ensnared by the devil and captured by him to do his will. You may be sitting here going, JD, I don't see people all around me possessed by demons. Well, Satan has a lot more tricks in his bag than just possession. He does all sorts of things to try to counteract and interfere with God's purpose of salvation and redemption. But the authority of Christ is able to set us free. The authority of Christ is exercised. His power is deployed to rescue us from the powers of darkness, to rescue us from deception, to free us from those snares, to take off the blinders, to break the shackles, to drive out the God and the ruler of this age so that he can come and dwell with us as our savior. I love what J.C. Ryle wrote In centuries past, he writes, the fear of man is strong. The opposition of this evil world is mighty. The lusts of the flesh rage horribly. The fear of death is terrible. The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but Jesus is stronger than them all. You have to believe that. 
We need to know that, and that's why Jesus is doing this. He's walking into synagogues and picking fights with demons so that he can prove that everything he's been saying is worthy of our faith. Christ has authority over the power of darkness, and he uses that authority on our behalf. It's part of his mission to save us. But there's a second way this authority is displayed. Number two, Christ has authority over the power of disease. Over the power of disease. Look in verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue. So this is the same day. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. The scene now shifts. We go from the public square to a private residence, and Jesus is with Simon. This is the first time Simon has been mentioned in this gospel. He will later be renamed Peter. Jesus is in his home. He's with his family. Simon and his brother Andrew had a fishing business. They lived there in Capernaum. It's very possible Jesus even stayed with them while he was there. Jesus is no stranger to Simon. He has a relationship with him. But it appears at this point that Simon has not yet been formally called to follow Jesus. We'll see that next week in Luke chapter 5. But that's where Jesus is. And we see here that there's a crisis, that Simon's mother-in-law is seriously ill. Um, Archaeologists and, and even modern geography shows us that this city, Capernaum, is about 700 feet below sea level, which means all the water runs downhill. If you want to be a plumber, my Father-in-law always said, you need to know that everything flows downhill and payday's on Friday. That's all you need to know to be a plumber, right? The water goes downhill. Yes, and hot is on the left, exactly. Because of that, infectious disease would have been common. You have a lot of moisture, a lot of humidity, a lot of standing water. Things like malaria are pretty common. We don't know exactly what she was sick with, but it says she has a high fever. This is not just feeling mildly under the weather. This is a serious illness, perhaps even life-threatening. So this is more than just discomfort. And so the family obviously comes and they plead with Jesus to help her. They appealed to him, verse 38, on her behalf. We see here the, the, the growing of faith. They're seeing Jesus has power. Jesus has authority. Jesus has compassion on those who suffer. Jesus, will you help my mother-in-law? Will you help my mother? Will you help our neighbor, our sister, our friend? They're appealing to Jesus to help, and Jesus does. Jesus, verse 39, he stood over her. He bends over her. He comes close to her. There's no social distancing here. He comes right up close. He stands over this ill woman, and he rebukes the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Jesus treats this disease the same way he treats the demon. As an enemy that must submit to his reign as the son of God. As a vestige of the old kingdom, as part of the broken fallen world, as one of those things that must be driven out and ended when the kingdom of God draws near. You see, Jesus has authority not only over the spiritual realm, but also over the physical, also over what you can touch, what you can see. We see this over and over again in Jesus' ministry. He has authority over the wind and the waves. 
He has authority over food quantities, turning one lunch into a meal for thousands. Jesus has authority over water and wine. Jesus will even have authority over physical death, telling Lazarus, Lazarus to come forth. Jesus has authority over the physical realm. And this healing that Jesus performs is so unlike many of the so-called healings that people talk about today. It is immediate, it is total, it is readily apparent to all, and it restores her to perfect health and perfect function. She begins immediately. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. Many of you have a mother-in-law or a mother or grandma like this. The thing they want to do is feed everyone. They want to show hospitality to everyone. And as this lady pops up and immediately gets to work, you can just sense the relief and the joy of everyone present. Wow, mom's back. Mom's back. She's back to her old self, serving everyone. Well, the response to this miracle also starts to get around. Verse 40, it says, Now when the sun was setting, all those, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Luke tells us that the sun is setting, which meant that for the Jewish people, the Sabbath was officially over. At sundown, that's when they flipped their calendars. And so now that the Sabbath was over, everyone is out and about, and they're no longer afraid of accidentally violating a Sabbath regulation by doing work. So they're carrying the sick, carrying the ill, carrying the needy, and, and bringing them to Jesus. And it sounds like the whole town is involved. It says, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them. Every one of them. Many come, and all are healed. Once again, we ask the question, why? Why is Jesus doing this? Why does Jesus heal Simon's mother-in-law? Why does he minister to this entire town, meeting their needs? Well, yes, Jesus has compassion, he has compassion on this woman and compassion on her family. He has compassion on others who are suffering in this town. And yes, Jesus is responding to their faith. They are asking. They are appealing. They are coming. And that pleases him. He blesses that. But even more than that, once again, there's a note here of authority. Jesus rebukes the fever. And he heals all of these people who come. He's continuing to silence the demons demonstrating that his authority over the corrupt realm is total. Whether it is spiritual or physical, all aspects of the curse have to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Just like our spiritual bondage, mankind suffers physical decay, disease, illness, injury, death. And Jesus is coming to undo the effects of the fall. His message of the kingdom, this message he is preaching, it includes not only spiritual freedom, but also restoration of the created order. He is going to make all things new, including those who believe. He will make us new as well. And Jesus is proving by these ongoing acts of deliverance that what happened in the synagogue and what happened at Simon's house, those weren't just one-time events. Those were simply examples of the kind of thing that Jesus does when he shows up to accomplish his father's will. 
This extensive ministry confirms that Jesus has compassion on sufferers and he has the authority and the power to help them, to heal them, and to restore them. And this is good news for those who live in a world that is marked by disease and death. Christ has authority over the power of darkness. Christ has authority over the power of disease. But there's a third display of authority here in this text. Christ has authority over the demands of men. He has authority over the demands of men. Verse 42 says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, as you can imagine, after a Sabbath like that, after an evening of healing and deliverance, the people don't want Jesus to leave. It's hard to fault them. It's kind of handy to have a Messiah around in case somebody gets sick next week. I mean, you just fixed everything today, but what about tomorrow? What what about next week? It could be nice when the wine runs out at the next wedding, you know? It could be nice the next time we need someone's lunch to feed a large crowd, It's funny, Nazareth tried to kill him, but Capernaum tries to keep him. But both of these towns failed to truly understand his mission. They didn't understand his mission. And we see here that Jesus refuses to submit to their wishes. But what's interesting to me here is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He rebukes the demon, he rebukes the fever, but he's so gentle with these people. There is no rebuke. He simply offers a gentle explanation, and this explanation is very, very important. Verse 43, he says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This purpose. He must preach the kingdom. You see, the message that God's program for the future is coming together, the message that the king is present, the message that this is what the kingdom is like and this is what it will be like when it is established on earth, there's other towns that need to see that, other towns that need to hear that. There's other sufferers that need to experience his compassion. There's other people that need to hear his message that all who would enter this kingdom, all who would be blessed by this authority and power must repent and believe. Other people need to hear that. And so Jesus cannot stay. And it's important that they understand it. And it's important that we understand it as well. That the authority of Christ, his power to restore and heal and deliver, that power is not subject to the demands of men. You see, the people who witnessed his mighty works on that day, and people like us who read about it today, we might read a story like this and get the wrong idea. Christ ministers to those who suffer, yes. But sufferers are not sovereign. We are not the ones who dictate where and when and how Jesus will exercise his authority. It is not ultimately our need that drives the mission of Christ. It is the sovereign will of the Father that drives Jesus' mission. It's not wrong that the people want him to stay. They want him to keep doing things for them. But Jesus says, listen, I want to serve you and I will serve you and help you, but I am not your servant. 
Jesus did say in the Gospel of Mark that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life, his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus does serve us, but he is not our servant. He is a servant of his Father. He does not our will, he does the Father's will. And it's essential that we understand this, that Jesus will not submit to the demands of men. He always submits to the will of his Father. And this is hard for us. It's hard for us because we know that Jesus has compassion on sufferers, right? We know that Jesus is capable of ending our suffering. We have people in the room today with chronic pain, people in the room with cancer, people in the room who deal with with spiritual oppression, people in the room who have things in their life that are broken. And it is so easy for us to say, God, why aren't you fixing it right now? Why don't you heal this right now? I know you can. You've done it before. We know that Jesus is capable. He's capable of ending all of our suffering immediately, but sometimes he doesn't. Why is that? And a very important lesson that Jesus is teaching these people and us, that sometimes the Father's plan The plan that Jesus is committed to fulfilling, sometimes it includes suffering in this world. And the end of our suffering, as those who come to Jesus to receive his grace, is not always immediate. It is eventual, but it is not always immediate. In fact, Jesus' mission would end with his own suffering. Jesus came to suffer. He would hang on a cross and lay down his life And through his resurrection, Jesus would secure the victory. But Jesus could not stay and simply be their guarantee that they would never have to suffer again. He had to go to the cross so that someday he could finally and perfectly end not only their suffering, but the suffering of all sinners who would ever look to him and place their faith in him. That was his mission. Jesus secures the ultimate victory and Jesus will establish the kingdom through his death, his suffering, through his resurrection. And right now, this good news, this message of the kingdom must continue to go out to all the other towns. We're supposed to be telling people about Jesus, telling them about the one who has power over darkness, power over disease, about the one who can raise them from the dead. But we do not present to them a Jesus that is simply on call to fix any discomforts they may have in this life. We tell them the good news that the kingdom is coming. And that gives us hope. And it does give us peace. We know that we are being called into an eternal kingdom in which every effect of the curse will be erased. All evil will be banished. Every tear will be wiped away. But it's not yet. We can have hope of that. But it is not yet. Today is not yet that day. What Jesus offers us today is freedom from spiritual bondage. What Jesus offers us today, today, is citizenship in that kingdom. What Jesus offers us today is hope for eternity. Hope that our suffering and that all evil has an expiration date. That hope can be yours. For all who receive the good news and believe in Jesus, we know that that day is coming And that one day Christ's authority will be exercised to bring about a future in which the war against God 
will once and for all be over. The effects of the curse will once and for all be made a matter of history. And in that day, we will worship the authoritative Messiah, the one who has exercised that power and that authority on our behalf so that we can enter into that kingdom. Christ has authority over the powers of darkness. He has authority over the power of disease. He also has authority over the demands of men. We receive his grace, but we are in no position to tell him what he must do. But as we consider this truth about Jesus, this is good news for needy people. And I want to ask you, how are you going to respond today? I want to give you two responses. We could talk about more, but just two implications. Number one, which is very simple and I hope readily apparent, you must respond to his glorious authority in obedience. Respond to his glorious authority with obedience. Some of us are allergic to authority. We have a hard time when somebody tells us something we don't want to hear. When we're made to do something we don't want to do. Or when we're kept from doing something that we do want to do. Rather than resent the authority of Christ. Rather than resist the authority of Christ. We are to respond in submission. The demons obey him. The fever obeys him. Will you obey him? It's a very straightforward question. We need to respond to the authority of Christ with submission. We need to see him rightly. We need to see that he is not the divine bellhop who is at our beck and call. He's the one who accomplishes his father's will. And in the process of that, we get to receive his grace. We ought to respond with gratitude and humility and obedience. We are to acknowledge his authority and power and bend our will and bow our knee to the son of God. Listen, to those who respond to the authority of Christ with resistance, his authority comes to them as a terror. It's not a positive thing. But those who come to Christ with submission find that authority to be a blessing. How you experience the authority of Christ depends on how you respond. Humble obedience and faith or stubborn resistance and unbelief. The choice is yours today. How will you respond to the authority of Christ? But there's a second implication. I hope this will be the encouraging part for you. I said at the beginning of this sermon that this guy named Charles Spurgeon said <laughs> with much wisdom that we should preach to broken hearts because in every pew we are sure to find some. If you came into the room today carrying sorrow, grief, pain, and difficulty, let me encourage you to respond to the text in this way. Rest in the goodness of his authority. That is God's word to you today, that you would rest in the goodness of his authority. It is in this authority, in this power, this gracious power of Christ that we find freedom, we find wholeness, and we find hope. We find life. And just like those who came to Jesus in Capernaum, we can come to him and we can be confident of his compassion on us. He laid his hands on every one of them. Those who were defiled. Those who were contagious. It's the amazing thing about Jesus that we'll see throughout the Gospels. is usually when the unclean and the clean touch. 
When the diseased and the healthy touch, usually the defilement is transferred to what is clean. Usually disease spreads to what is healthy. But it's the opposite with Jesus. When he lays his hands on us, the defiled become clean. The diseased become whole. The oppressed and the enslaved become free. Rest in the authority of Christ. Come to him to receive his compassion. Be confident that he will express his personal care for you. And you can look to him as the answer for your suffering. He may not immediately end it today. But if you come to him, he promises you his grace. He promises you a kingdom. He promises you to show love and compassion. And you can rest in that. Your relief may not be immediate, but it is promised to all who believe. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. That when the last trumpet sounds and the dead are raised, that they are raised imperishable. That's a word you can take to the bank. Imperishable. No more cancer. No more arthritis. No more heart disease. No more strokes. No more dementia or Alzheimer's. Imperishable. Jesus is going to reverse what has happened in this world. Paul says this perishable body is going to put on the imperishable. And this mortal body is going to put on immortality. You can rest in that. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, in this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That's something we can rest in, that we know this is what God is doing. This is the Father's sovereign plan, accomplished through the Son, and graciously performed in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's something we can rest in. So for those who enter today carrying those burdens, take heart, look to Jesus, and behold the power and the authority of our Savior. It's not just a bare naked authority. It is an authority that flows from his goodness, and it is exercised on behalf of sufferers. And that is something we can rest in. The authority of Christ is good news because he wields this authority not only for the glory of his Father, but also for the good of those who suffer. May we respond today in submission to Christ and rest in his gracious power to save. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, so thankful that your plan is better than our plan. There are so many people in Jesus' day who didn't understand his mission. They didn't understand your plan. They didn't understand or agree with The fact that Jesus had to die, it didn't make sense. But Lord, your plan is so perfect. We see the wisdom and the power of it now. Lord, similarly, it's hard for us sometimes today to understand your timing, to understand your purposes and why you would allow us to go through difficulties when we know you have the power to end it. 
But Lord, as we look to the word, we see your character, we see your goodness, we see your authority, and we see that your plan, even if we don't understand it or agree with it, your plan is always good. And it is going to bring about a glorious and perfect end. We rejoice, Lord Jesus, in your power over darkness, your power over the decay of the physical realm. And I ask that you would strengthen our hearts today, that we would rest in your goodness, rest in that authority. Lord, for those who see this authority as a threat to them, for those who see this authority as distasteful, those who do not want to submit to you, I pray that you would help them to see the goodness of it, that today that their hearts would be caused to yield you would open their eyes and set them free from the blindness that Satan holds them to right now. Pray that you would bring them out of darkness and into light. Give them life. Bring them into your kingdom that they might worship you for eternity. For your goodness, your grace, and your power. Amen.